morning everyone i want to thank everybody for tuning in today to the future paralegals of america news channel and y'all i found her like i immediately started recording y'all might hear some noise in the background but i just like was sitting here play like i remember watching this video so i said okay well let me let this play from these people channel and let me see what happens and man as i was sitting there her video came on y'all i found the girl for real i'm so serious i found her anyway so i'm gonna let it play and i'm just gonna continue this tomorrow because it's so late but i found her y'all like somebody save her help her for real I'm serious. She left her. Her name is in there. Everything. Like, help her. Please. All right. Hello, this is Carly Franz, and today is Monday, February 11th of 2019. This is going to be the most important video that I have made yet. I'm going to be telling you the names, the places, and everything. So if somebody could please, in case anything happens to me, if anything should happen to me after divulging this information to the public, um, I hope that somebody will save this video or download it to their computer and maybe re-upload it in the future because I think that um, after this video I will be facing some serious repercussions for what I'm exposing. I had to type it out because there's so much information and I want to keep the video at, you know, under like 20 minutes because there's just a lot to talk about. And I know that when I'm just kind of talking from the heart, I usually like pause or I might, um, you know, lose my train of thought. So I'm going to be reading off of a document that I typed up because um, it's just going to be better that way. This is a detailed written account of my events. These repressed memories surfaced in mid-August of 2018 through January of 2019, over two decades after the abuses took place. My parents, Carl Walter Franz and Holly Marie Johnson, got married in 1989 and I was born in 1990. My father's father, so my grandfather, Hilmar Franz, purchased a home in La Mesa, California for my parents to live in. However, the title was never given to them. It was always kept in my grandfather's name, albeit the house is currently in a living trust, cryptically named the Franz Survivors Trust. My parents divorced in 1992, and while my father continues and continues and still does, he lives in this house. My mother moved out to live with her sister Shelley and brother-in-law Charles in neighboring Spring Valley, California, in a house on Bancroft View Drive. My parents had joint custody of, me, custody of me, with my mother being the primary custodian. In June of 1996, during my last week of kindergarten, on a Thursday, while I was in the care of Shelley and Charles, as my mother was on a work trip, I was taken from the Spring Valley house abducted in a van and under the darkness of early morning by my father's great uncle, so my grandfather's brother, Dieter Franz. Dieter's wife, Lindy Franz, who is in the Eastern Star Cult, 
my father's father, so my grandfather, Hilmar Franz, and his wife, Jean Franz. She's dead now. And they were all in the van. My grandfather's brother, so dear Franz, was the person who came into the house to take me. My mother's brother-in-law, my uncle Charles, was there, and he tried to stop Dieter from taking me. They got into a physical stuff scuffle, and Dieter threatened Charles' life by telling him that he would kill him. He had a gun. If he didn't step aside and let me be taken, Charles did not have a gun. My Aunt Shelley was sitting on the staircase witnessing this. Their bedroom was upstairs, and mine was downstairs. I remember Dieter wearing a leather jacket, hat, and gloves as he carried me out of the house in Spring Valley, out the front door. Charles held the door open with a look of shame and sadness on his face that he tried to somewhat hide behind the door. I was taken in the van to my great uncle's house in Los Alamitos, California, which is in Orange County. And I remember my grandfather Hilmar and his brother Dieter arguing in German in front of me outside of the door to Dieter's home garage. I believe that my grandfather was trying to stop Dieter from what he was about to do. Dieter was wearing a Nazi officer's hat in shorts and a shirt. My grandfather, Hilmar, closed the side door to the garage as Dieter was shoving me into the back seat of his car, a gold Cadillac with Master Mason's license plates, which was parked in the garage. Dieter sat on the back seat and told me to take my clothes off. I refused and began crying. He grabbed me, took off my underwear, and pulled me onto his lap to which his penis was exposed. I fought him as he was raping me, and he eventually let go of me. I urinated in his car, which infuriated him, and then he shoved me out of it. I was then taken into the house where there was porn being played in the living room. There was a little girl there that appeared to be around my age, and she was naked. I was told to sit on the couch and to not go anywhere. I could hear another child being abused in one of the bedrooms down the hall. I tried to talk to this little girl, but she didn't understand English, and she was not white. She was tan and had black hair. We were ordered to drink juice boxes in this living room, which were laced with some kind of sedative. After consuming the juice boxes, we were taken down the hallway that branched into bedrooms. In one bedroom to the right side, I saw my grandmother, Jean, sitting on a bed in her underwear, and she had a look of disgust and sadness about her. Dieter took me and this little girl into a bedroom on the left side and closed the door. This room had a bed, lots of child-sized lingerie hanging everywhere, pornographic photos of children on the wall, and it was at this point that I passed out. I do not remember the details of what went on in this bedroom. When I awoke from the sedatives at night, I was driven to the Bellflower Masonic Center in Los Alamitos, California. Los Alamitos is in Orange County, and it's about an hour and a half north of San Diego. And so these relatives perpetrators on my father's side of the family live in Los Alamitos too. Upon exiting this van that I was abducted in, a stranger carried me into the building and away from the people who were familiar to me. I could feel their presence leaving me as I was brought into the building and down to the basement. First, there was a long hallway with metal cages lining the entire distance. There had to have been about 50 cages and half of them were empty while others the other half contained naked children. I was first brought into an all pink room with a satanic star on the wall where about 15 to 20 of the Eastern star cult women rubbed me and molested me while love bombing me with sayings like, you're so lucky to be chosen. Lindy was in this room and conversing with the other Eastern star women. I was then taken into a gold gilded hallway with red carpet, chandeliers, mirrors, 
In this hallway, I only witnessed one old-looking woman who was dressed in a long black dress with long sleeves, lots of jewelry, tons of makeup, and short black hair. She kind of looks like Shirley MacLaine. All of the other people there were men, and they were dressed in tuxedos, Freemason regalia such as medals, aprons, their necklaces. We took a left turn into another hallway and then a right turn into a long dining room that was crowded with these men, and men only. There was a gilded two-headed bird on the wall at the end of the table with gold rays behind it. And this room had blue carpet with gold stars and one large light fixture in the center of the room. When I was brought into the room, the faces of the men lit up with excitement and I was brought to the end of the table and placed on an altar which had a large book, probably the Bible on it. And this book was removed when I was placed on the altar. There was a cameraman there with a very large black camera resting on his right shoulder. I was stripped naked out of my pajamas in this room in front of at least a hundred men as they jeered and whistled at me. They proceeded to hold me face down on my stomach and inserted a foreign object far into my anus. I remember the feeling of going deaf for a moment when this happened. As I was held down, the men proceeded to form two lines and took turns raping me. Some of the men wanted me face up and others face down. Some performed rape and some performed other sexual performances. I was forced to remain face up when it was Dieter's turn to rape me. My grandfather did not want to make eye contact with me when it was his turn. There were about 20 men left in line when they had to stop because I was bleeding. When the sexual abuse was over and the room seemed to have kind of cleared out, a smaller group of men, around 10 people, came into this dining room dressed in long hooded robes. They were kind of dark brown in color. One of them brought a little boy who appeared to be around my age into the room on a rolling cart or altar. This little boy was strapped to the cart he was on, and one man in a hooded robe began to cut the boy open in the chest and proceeded to torture him. There was a man standing a little ways behind him wearing what appeared to be a cow skull or goat skull. At this time, I was placed inside of an animal carcass, but I could still see things going on in the room. As this little boy was being cut open alive, the man doing this was also bending over him and appeared to be eating the boy's entrails and blood. When the boy died and his scream stopped, a black mist appeared in the center of the room, at the same distance that this little boy's body was from me, and I'm still at the head of the table on the altar. The men were chanting, and I remember them saying Lucifer. The black mist in the center of the room grew larger, and this demon was summoned. I saw its red eyes, and it was speaking in another language. Its voice sounded like thunder. The room filled with the black darkness, and then I was taken into another room. This room was a surgical-looking room, and a male with brown hair and glasses cleaned me up. He was wearing a mask and surgical robes. He sat me in a chair, strapped my arms down, and then proceeded to make a small incision in the middle of my left forearm. He took out a large syringe and inside was a clear capsule that contained a small circular part that connected to a small rectangular chip with a wire. He put a band-aid on my arm and then I was taken into another room. This next room had a baby chained to the wall with extremely bruised and mangled legs. Another baby was brought out on a cart and this baby was white and wearing a diaper. They ordered me to kill the baby and I refused. They even put a knife in my hand and threatened to kill me, and I still refused. This baby was taken away. Back to the baby chain to the wall. The damage to this baby's body was so severe that I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. 
As this baby cried and screamed, I was forced to watch as a laughing man in a short-sleeved police officer uniform and hat stabbed the baby in the head, killing it. I was then chained to the floor in this room. The floor had black and white checkered pattern to it, and the room was dimly lit. Wooden pallets were used in this room as wall dividers. To my left side, there was another child chained to the floor. But when I tried to talk to this child, I received no response. This child was, in fact, dead. I was just barely able to touch this dead child's hand on my left side, and it felt crusty. As I laid on the floor terrified, I could hear other children being abused and hurt on the other side of the wall of pallets. I remember trying to find a safe place in my mind, and I thought about a bright white room to try to cope with what I was experiencing. When it was time to leave, I was carried out of the building, and I remember trying to see where I was and observe everything that I could outside of the building before I got into the van and taken back to the Spring Valley house. I saw the long hallway of crates of children again before being taken up the staircase and outside. I remember the Masonic compass and G glowing on the side of the building, and I remember what the Bellflower Masonic Center looked like near the roof line of the building. The car ride back to Spring Valley was quiet, and there were about seven police officers at the house when I returned. Two officers took me to my room and threw me down on my bed. They stood at my door and threatened me that if I were to ever speak out, I would be killed along with everyone that I loved. I was so tired and afraid, I cried myself to sleep. The next morning when I woke up, my Uncle Charles came to my room, and it looked like he had been crying. He asked me to keep this a secret and never talk about it. Sorry. I was dressed in a long sleeve corduroy dress and leggings before being taken to school. When I arrived at school, several kids came running to me, asking if I was okay. What happened to me? The kids said that I was on the news. The following nights were really difficult for me. As I had sleep problems, I was extremely afraid of the dark. I would look at the bruises on my arms and just feel terrified. The memories from my abuse haunted me, and I felt very stuck, alone, afraid to talk about what happened. I believed the police that if I spoke out when I was little, I would end up just like the children who were murdered. I promised myself that someday when I was old enough, big enough, and strong enough, that I would know what to do. Sorry. I would lay awake in bed at night. As a little girl, and these memories would play in my mind over and over. I tried to block these memories out of my mind. It was a normal thing for my grandfather and grandmother to drive down to La Mesa every other weekend from their home in Los Alamitos and stay with my father and I for the weekend. Weekends were my father's custody time with me. I remember trying to ask my grandmother what certain government uniforms look like as I was desperate to find out what these blue and white embroidered aprons were about. But at the same time, I knew that I wouldn't get a straight answer from her and I didn't. Grandmother Jean was revered by many people as a very sweet old lady, but it was just a facade. She would never speak about the things that she was forced to do. Dieter and Lindy were also present at many family events, frequent barbecues, pool parties, holidays with his wife, and they were even present at the last visit that I had to my grandfather's house in Los Alamitos a few years ago. It was at this last visit that my great uncle divulged to me in a proud matter-of-fact way that he's a Freemason. 
growing up, my grandfather and his brother would joke about staying away from garlic, and I never understood it until now. Freemasons participate in blood drinking, child sacrifice rituals, vampirism. I also have memories of seeing my father's genitalia up close and in my face, taking a shower with me when I was about six or seven. I remember touching his genitals as he turned away from me when he started to get an erection. Throughout my childhood, there were instances of being in my father's care, and he would, against my will, tell me that he needed to rub Nivea cream on my crotch, which was just pure molestation. Why couldn't I do that myself? Sometimes my grandparents were there, too, on a visit, and I didn't. they didn't bat an eye at this. He would do this with the door open, so I never knew if I was being helped or if it was just my pedophile family members all being complicit with each other in my abuse. Eventually, this stopped as I got older, but I never understood why I wasn't allowed to put moisturizing cream on myself if it was, in fact, some necessity. Around the time of my cousin being born, my aunt's daughter, I witnessed her monarch program paperwork on the coffee table. The distinct font and butterfly sitting on the M of the monarch logo is still clear in my mind. I saw the words dark princess, and I'm certain that this was the enslavement paperwork for this cousin. I remember hearing my mother and her sister talking about the MK Ultra Monarch program paperwork, specifically regarding what they should do if someone were to wake up and try to expose what is going on. They said that Dr. Phil is a code word for making someone disappear. And this will make the abused person think that they're trying to help them, but they really aren't. It's the exact opposite. They also mentioned Rick Ross as being the facilitator of these abused victims disappear but having an attorney friend that is close to Dr. Phil is their code word for silencing anyone coming forward. They did not know that I could hear them talking about this, but I remember thinking that this was very important information at the time and kept it to myself. I eavesdropped on my mother talking to a friend in 1997 about her MKUltra involvement, and this friend asked about how her new fiancé felt about it. My father and mother always pushed me to do certain things that ended up being detrimental to my success in life and coerced me to make choices that kept me in a constant state of dependency so that I could not escape them. In high school, I was pressured by my mother to not focus on school and start working as soon as it was legal. My father pressured me not to work and live with him during college so that he could keep me as a maid, forced me to see, vi see and visit my perpetrators, and continue to verbally abuse me, all while looking like the person and people who are helping me by paying for my community college and loaning me a car to drive. I have made my presence known via the internet, Reddit, YouTube, and I will not remain silent on what happened to me. It's happening all the time. The police, CPS, Freemasons, doctors, therapists, nurses, Department of Defense, the CIA, the Department of Health, they are all complicit in the abuse that took place because they are all in the cult of concealing each other's crimes. Freemasonry and Order of the Eastern Star.